Take out your sermon notes if you haven't taken them out already. 1 Corinthians 13. Today, exciting, we come to chapter 13, verses 8 to 13. I thought about doing a special message with all the things that are happening, but I said, no, we're going to try and keep it as normal as possible. So that's what we're doing. That's why we're still in 1 Corinthians 13. And we're coming to the final section. We've worked through the first seven verses over 10 studies, <laughs> just flying right through. But watch what we do today, okay? So why are we studying this section or what are we seeing in this section? We want to see why love is the excellent way for you. Where did that come from? You should all know by now that the Apostle Paul has been talking about spiritual gifts and, and he comes to the end of chapter 12 and he says, I'll show you a more excellent way. And that's what he wants to do. He wants to, he wants to show the more excellent way. What I'd like you to do, though, is just to get a little background for what I'm trying to convey today. Turn back in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. And I want to share with you a story. I know there are people who like stories, and I like Bible stories. And, you know, I can always tell a joke when we start a service. And my jokes, I know, leave you laughing. Oh, and by the way, everybody say hi to Bob and Cynthia. Bob and Cynthia are back from Texas. Yeah. Nice to have you here, Bob. Just for today, because they bought a house in Texas, but that's okay. We love you anyway, but uh, but it's nice to have you here. Um, I love stories, and this is one of the more famous stories in all the Bible, okay? It's a story of two sisters, Mary and Martha, and it's a story that helps us in 1 Corinthians because it's a story that talks about making a right choice when you've got Two good things, okay? You know, two good things, but sometimes amongst two good things, that there is one that's better, and something that's good is not good anymore. And so we're about one year into the, um, we're into the last year of Jesus' ministry. Remember, for those of you who've been on our Wednesday studies, from chapter 9 to about chapter 19 of Luke, that is all the final year of Jesus' life. And so in the middle of this, he, he, he's traveling from northern Israel to, to Jerusalem. And we come to verse 38, and it says, Now as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. Okay? But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. <clears throat> what did Martha do? Martha's doing what almost any responsible woman would do. I've invited people to my home. I've got food. I've got cleaning. I've got to get things ready, right? I got to, I, and, then, and then how would you like to go, Jesus, I need help. I need help, Jesus. Jesus says, look, you've made the wrong choice. You made the wrong choice. But what is this teaching? Because think about it. We, we have a big outreach at Thanksgiving. And when we have a big outreach at Thanksgiving, there's a lot of women in the kitchen. There's a lot of men in the kitchen. We go down and say, you guys, what are you doing? You know, we don't say that. Why? 
because it's a different situation. This was a situation when Mary and Martha had actually Jesus in hand. You know, you, you, have a, you have a Thanksgiving outreach, you have a different function, and all of a sudden, you know, we're doing it for the people who are coming in. So it's totally appropriate for those women to be down there or those men that are being down there. You, you have a function where you have people in your house and you're inviting them over to dinner. You can't all of a sudden say, hey, you know, what are you doing? We're all watching the game. Watch the game with us and um, don't have all the preparations going. You can't. But what this is trying to say is at, at sometimes you've got to be you got to be smart. You got to discern. In that situation, she should have said, wait, I really need to realize that focusing on Jesus was really more important that time. It's, a, it's an idea of trying to discern what is going on, that you just don't rotely always go through situations. And you've got to sometimes think things through. And we would look at this in sense of life where, where when somebody... Um, like is a mom and she's got a bunch of kids and where you don't want to be a mom that's always doing dishes, always doing housework and then never takes time with the kids. Nor do you want to be a dad that is always working and never takes time for the kids. Right. You got to sit there and say, wait a second. There's sometimes I got to put my work aside, whether it's the housework or it's my other work. And I got to spend time with the kids. Now, a mom couldn't always do that in the, or the house would go berserk. The dad can't always let things go for the kids. He's got to go to work. But there's got to be wisdom and discernment. And so part of that is recognizing sometimes amongst two good things, housework, kids, work, kids, that sometimes i got to make a choice. All right? And with that understanding, I think God is trying to get us to understand, I believe, that this is something where life isn't always cookie cutter in a box. Now, why does this? Why is this so important for us in 1 Corinthians 13? Go back there. Go back to 1 Corinthians 13, and I've already shared with you. The Apostle Paul is saying, "I'm going to show you a more excellent way." So, what what we have? What are the two good things? What are the two good things? Being somebody that has a spiritual gift, and he's gone through an apostle, he's a prophet, and, and these are things that come to people who believe in Jesus Christ. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ. Every one of you should have a spiritual gift. If you don't have a spiritual gift, that's a problem. If you're not using your spiritual gift, that's a problem. Good Spiritual gifts are a very important part of Christianity. And we went through this, and we're going to go, when we come into chapter 14, more into spiritual gifts. Every person who places their faith in Jesus Christ, when you turn from your sin and you believe Jesus is God, man, who died on the cross to pay the blood for your sin, you get empowered. It's incredible. There's a reality that it's not like this mystical, well, it's not like a, a mystical magical show. It's a mystical truth and reality that God absolutely comes and resides in you. And now you have the ability to do some of these great spiritual gifts that are listed in 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, and Romans 12 as well, right? You got those, those remember those are the four main passages that spiritual gifts are listed. So you, 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 you have that ability. But the church at Corinth was selfish. They were fighting. Remember, they're arrogant, and they're fighting amongst one another. And the Apostle Paul says, wait a second. What, what you're not getting is that underlying it, everything that you do needs to be a, a, needs to be a priority that supersedes how you work with spiritual gifts, how you work with one another, 
and I'm going to show you a more excellent way, a more superior way. What he did was, and you can look at your sermon notes, is he said, look, what I want you to do is I want you to understand that love is greater in value than any other gift. So don't fight over it. So look at verses one to three. And you've heard this before, but I want you to understand is now, you know, when we say, Martha, you missed it. Martha, you didn't calculate it right. You, you should have recognized the situation. You had actual Jesus here with you, right? Love is superior in value to all other actions. And so what he's trying to get you to understand in, in your decision-making process of how you're going to process your life, that you say, wait a second, there's, there's great speaking abilities. Verse one, there's great gifts like prophecies and mysteries and knowledge. Okay, but if I don't have love, I have nothing. I'm a big zero. The value matters because you are going to be judged before God and you're going to be rewarded for how you live. So you better have love. So like Martha should have recognized the situation. You need to recognize the situation. Then we went into... This, in the idea of verses 4 to 7, no other word has a description like this. And that's why you've got to understand how love operates. That love has these 15 actions, not feelings. I mean, I tell you, I, I, I talk to people and, and, and you know, people are struggling. Maybe you know people struggling in marriage, right? And, and you ask them, like, what's going on in your life? And they'll often say, well, I just don't know if we feel like we love one another. And, 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 and I, I get that. I, I hear that all the time. And the reality of it is, is that love is an action. God is calling us to say, you know, I, I'm patient, I'm kind, I'm not jealous. And people have to see that when they, they focus on their marriage. It's, it's going to be an action, not a feeling. So what God wants somebody to do is read verses 4 to 7 and say, ah, I get it. I'm going to act in love because there's no other word like this. Now, where do we go now? Look at verses 8 to 13. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. Verse 10, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as i've also been fully known but now faith hope love abide these three but the greatest of these is love what is he trying to do what as paul works to this next section he uses the expression love agape love not a love of sex not a love of even family but a love primarily of choice sacrifice that's what the word agape means a love never fails love never goes away and that's why you fill in the third blank here is that love is superior in continuity. And it's a big word. Continuity. It goes on. What the Apostle Paul wants you to understand when I'm in a Mary Martha situation in life, when I'm trying to figure out what I make as a priority in life, not only do I have value, not only do I have description, but the third kicker is continuity. And what do I mean by that? is that you will always be loving one million years from today. One million years from today. Love never fails means it never goes away. It's a, it's a present tense verb. It, 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 it sometimes gets translated love, love never rusts. 
this is not about success. Because, you know, like, if I, if I go and I say, oh, you know, I've got my wife, and my wife and I are having troubles, but I love her, and because I've loved her, she all of a sudden gets her act together, and we're, we're wonderful together. And, and see, if, if you guys would do agape love, you'd have a good marriage too. That doesn't work. It's something that doesn't work. It doesn't work. That's not, and someone says, whoa, love never fails. It, it always is successful. That's not what this is saying. It, 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 what it's saying is, is like it never decays. It never, if I'm getting my, my um, rusting down, oxidizes. It never goes away. It will always be there. That's what he's trying to say. And so you've got to recognize that, that, that what he's trying to do in these continuity points is the very first thing he's trying to say is love goes on forever. And when you grasp that love goes on forever, it becomes mind-boggling. Because I can imagine, I mean, and just hypothetically, let, let's say, um, I, I believe, I, I, I'm going to use this illustration, I don't want to upset anybody, but I, I, this would fit. Like, let, I believe like a, a, a baby, if it dies, I think it's going to be in heaven. Okay? So let's say a million years from today, I'm in heaven, and I, this baby is now given a, a body of an adult or whatever, and we're talking, and we're sitting down, and we're talking. And talking, and he says to me, what in the world was it like to be on earth and to have faith? Like, what are you talking about? Well, because I never had experienced faith, and we don't experience faith in heaven. Why not? Well, because I don't have to have faith about anything. I, I see God. He's there. And then he says to me, What's it, what was it like to have hope? Because I can't ever imagine. I can't even imagine what it's like to have hope. Well, what are you talking about? Because, because, boy, I can remember my days in 2020, and I was hoping there was food. I was hoping there was toilet paper. I'm hoping this. I'm hoping that. And, and I was always hoping that Jesus came back, and I'm hoping in being, being here. And I, I hope is an expectation of some good that's in the future. He goes, well, I'm in heaven. I never have to hope for anything. Whatever I want is given. It's here, right? That's why, that's why verse 13 one of the most famous verses in all the Bible, now abide in faith, hope, and love, right? Greatest of these is love. Why is that? It's because love goes on forever. Hope doesn't. Hope doesn't. Faith doesn't. But where is this also going? Where is this in the Martha and Mary story in the continuity? It's the very fact. It's the very, very fact that I'm not going to need to be a prophet in heaven. I'm not going to have to have gifts of healing in heaven. I'm not going to have to speak in tongues in heaven. I don't know if we'll have teachers in heaven, but the spiritual gifts, by and large, aren't going to be operative. And so God is trying to get you to understand, if you're like thinking, oh man, here I am sitting in the pew and I don't have this great spiritual gift, I'm not as great as this person, you're missing it. You need to understand how important it is that you focus on love, yet still focus on your spiritual gift. But you need to understand why, because of the point of continuity. All right? And where he goes with this is, look, verse 8, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And what he tries to get into is that revelatory gifts don't go on forever. 
these gifts will end sometime in the future after when Paul wrote. And, 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 and the kind of gifts that he brings up, all three of these, let me explain all three. You look at verse 8, gifts of prophecy. There are gifts of tongues and gifts of knowledge. When we say revelatory, don't you just love big words like that? Revelatory just rolls off your lip. It's revelatory. What does that mean? These were all gifts. Prophecy, the ability to proclaim God's word, to get a message from God and to proclaim it. It is not preaching. And I say this again because I know some of you have studied Bibles and John MacArthur. And I quote John. And I quoted John last week. And I told you about how great I, I used his definitions for verse 7. But I also sometimes want you to understand we don't love just idolize any person, any man. And I point him out because John makes a big mistake, I think, in the sense that he says prophecy is preaching. And I, we, we did a study. There's a podcast. I highly encourage you to go back and if you can find it. That, that, that we went through the definition. And I tried to show you how prophecy is not preaching. Okay? Prophecy was they didn't have they didn't have the Bible, and all of a sudden somebody who needed something out of Second Corinthians when Second Corinthians was written, they would Apostle Paul would or some other prophet would come along, he'd be infused with that information, and then he would proclaim it. Then somebody was sitting in the pew and say, "How how do I know that's true?" Well, he would be given knowledge. This isn't knowledge like information, like all of a sudden we're going to get to heaven. Knowledge is going to go away. And all of a sudden, we're all going to be stupid and, and dumb in heaven. But you see in verse 8, when he says, he says, there's gifts of prophecy, there's gifts of tongues, and then knowledge was done away. It was the word of knowledge. Go up to chapter 12, verse 8. Okay, it, for To one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. That word of knowledge, we said, was somebody hears a prophecy, they can say, wait a second, doctrinally this works. Or that's how we thought this would work. Or maybe they would proclaim some type of concept where they would explain the Trinity or they would explain sanctification. Because you got to remember, the Apostle Paul is writing 1 Corinthians. And I know you guys have love dates, but it's about 55 AD. And maybe the book, well, I know the first gospel written, Matthew is written by now, but you don't have the gospel of John. You don't have the gospels of um, the, uh, you don't have Luke and Mark yet written. You don't have you don't have books like um, First and Second Peter written yet. You don't have um, books First, Second, Third John, and you don't have the Book of Revelation written. There's so much that the early church doesn't have. It's not yet put together. It's not yet compiled. And and so well, people will say, well, why did God give us these gifts? Well, because in time and space, He didn't just drop a Bible into everybody's lap. It took time for it to be written, compiled. He used history. He uses time and space. And that compilation took time. What I find interesting is there are writers by the first century that we know that are Christian writers, that are solid people, that they're not even talking about tongues anymore by the first century. Because we're thinking that by that quickly on, by, by the time we get to 95 AD, that's when the last New Testament book is written. So you see, when he says there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it will be done away. 
he uses these verbs of them ceasing, they're passive. The first and the third verb, done away, is the exact same one, and it's a passive word, and it means something is being done to it. It's ending. And, the, and then the second word, where tongues, the ability to speak in a foreign language, it will end, is the idea is that it's a, in a middle voice that can carry the sense sometimes of, of, a, of, a, of a passive, that something was done to it. And the idea when we talk about that is that there's the feeling that God is the one that brings these to an end. Now, here comes the big debate. When is this? And this is where the struggle comes in with this passage because there's the old, argue, there's the old concept of the forest and the trees. What's the big forest picture here? Continuity. What's the trees? Well, you've got one of the most difficult passages. You've got a passage that is talking about prophecy and tongues and knowledge. You've got a, pro, a, a passage that's talking about parts. And you've got a part that, that we're going to get to the word, the, the perfect or the, or the complete. What in the world is that? And people get really um, distracted. And I got to tell you, no matter where you end up on some of these conservative views on this, you're still going to come back to the idea of continuity, that continuity is critical, that we understand well, the reason God wants you to focus on love is because of continuity. But I know I've got to tell you, and you know that I've got to make sure that you all understand what's going on here. And I think what the Apostle Paul is trying to convey is the fact that when you've got these parts, they are going to all come together. And I believe the parts are the parts of the Bible. Now, so he throws this speculation. You see the three times, if, 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 it means this could possibly happen, and it will, that, I, I, in this sense. If this happens, if this happens. Now, what are the three major views? The three major views, when we come down to verse 9, when it says, for we know in part, and the idea of know is knowledge, and we prophesy in part, which you know we proclaim God's word in part, information that we're giving out in part. And that's when I talk about the fact, you know, at this time, little bits and pieces are strolling into coming into the church. That's parts, that's all it means. It's like different aspects. And he says, but when the perfect comes, arrives, the perusa, when it arrives, the partial will be done away. Well, the word perfect there is teleos. It means complete. Sometimes it's translated perfect. It may, well, here are the three major views, conservative views. Number one, it, it, it's either talking about Jesus. Jesus is the perfect one. In the book of Hebrews, I think it's chapter 12, he's called the perfect one. So is that what it's talking about? Or is the perfect talking about eternity? As if we go into eternity, and once eternity comes, we don't need these spiritual gifts. People who hold to those two views will often think that prophecy and tongues and, and things, other revelatory gifts are still around. However, we've already shown you that that can't be because we've got a completed New Testament. And, and if all of a sudden this morning I came up and I gave you a prophecy, if I gave you something that was worthy of being in the Bible, it needs to be in the Bible. That's why it has to end. And I, I you know, someone will say, well, wait a second, is there going to be prophecy in the tribulation? There could be. But that's not for the New Testament church. That's part of the, why I would think the New Testament church isn't there. Um, so what is the third view? 
I believe the third view is the complete references, the Bible, the New Testament Bible, the, the, the complete. And I'm going to try and show you a few things that might give you that view. I believe all three of those could be possibly biblical. The perfect could be Jesus. The, the, the complete could be heaven. But theologically, it doesn't fit, I believe, for it to be those first two views. I believe it has to be the Bible. And, 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 and just keep it really, really simple so that when you understand it, then you, 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 um, you would look at this and say, oh, he's talking about continuity. We recognize that, that there's going to come a time when even these spiritual gifts don't go on. Why should I pursue the spiritual gift? You know, Why should I get all up in arms that I don't have the gift of prophecy? Well, because love will continue, but the spiritual gift of prophecy is going to go by the wayside. Tongues is going to go by the wayside. We're not going to need it, okay? And again, all three of those are revelatory gifts. I find it interesting that he, he doesn't say hope will go away. He doesn't say faith will go away here because at this point, he's not talking about those types of, of attributes. Those attributes will go away, but he's talking about revelatory gifts. So when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And then he gives this illustration. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. And when I became a man, I did away with childish things. This is the first of two illustrations that are trying to get you to understand there's a, trans a, 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 a transitory nature where... I believe he's applying it to the church. And he uses the idea of, of when you were a kid. When you were a kid, you used to think certain things. You used to be able to, you used to not be able to understand how all of life works. You knew there were things like money, but you really never understood how there was a U.S. Treasury, how money got printed, how M1, M2, M3 money supplies work. It gets a little more complicated. But when you get older, you start to realize, wait a second, not only do I have to use money, but I have to use a checking account. I have to balance my checking account. We all balance our checking accounts, right? Right? We all balance our checking accounts, right? Okay. You know, because we all handle our money right. Because we're not, we're no, we're not long, we're no longer kids. You know, we're no longer kids. And, and, and all he's trying to do is trying to get you to understand. Well, you should say, oh yeah, I can understand. There, there's a sense of maturity. There's a sense of, of completion. And so he uses that illustration. And then he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, verse 12, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will fully know just as I've been fully known. And a lot of people make the mistake when they look at this face to face and say it's face Jesus. When I look at Jesus' face. And that's why they take the eternity view. But I believe he was talking about, you know, in their day and age, we know that mirrors didn't work that well. And they, especially I think in Corinth, they were well known for these mirrors, right? And you go and you look in a mirror and it gives you an image of who you are. And, and I believe he's saying, look, we know these mirrors don't always work. We don't always see face to face. But one day we're going to see clearly. It's like we're going to have a good mirror. And whose face am I going to see? I'm going to see my own face. We're going to see face to face. And I'll know, I, I will no longer know in part. A lot of people take this, well, this is eternity. I'm going to know everything then. I, but that's not necessarily even true how it's all going to play in part. But 
it's the idea, I think, of we're going to be able to know what God wants us to be fully when we look at the Bible. Turn back over to your Bibles into James chapter 1. And the, James will be written, or has been written by this time. Yeah, James was written at this time. So Hebrews, James, um, the book of James, written by the half-brother of Jesus. And, and um, we're, we're, we're talking about the Bible. We're talking about the Bible be something that needs to be put in practice. And we're, we're told to be doers of the word, verse 22. But prove yourselves doer of the word, that's doers of God's word. Hebrew, I mean, James chapter 1, verse 22. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a what doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. See, because the Bible, I think this is a great illustration, the Bible becomes like a mirror. And, and where do you, what do you do? You make adjustments when you look into the word of God. So he says, for once he has looked at himself and gone away, he immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, and there's our word perfect, aha, teleos, complete, the complete. So this is why I, I think it fits that when we go back to 1 Corinthians, that it fits the perfect law of liberty and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. And so he's saying, I believe, look, the word of God is something that you look at, you look at it like a mirror, and you make adjustments. And so, you know, what, what you see, you know, you got up this morning, you guys comb your hair, you make sure that you look good, you know, nobody, you know, comes here with their shirt half button or, you know, food hanging off of their face or something. You get there, you brush your teeth, you make sure you got no food between your teeth, you put all your hair in place, and then you go out. That's what you do with the Word of God. And it's a shame if all of a sudden you're reading the Bible and it talks about being loving or talks about doing something or talks about sharing, and you and you recognize, wow, I look at this and this isn't where my life is lining up. So you adjust your life. That's what the Bible is to do. It is to be a mirror so that I tell you when you read and it says, you know, be anxious for nothing. You say, well, guess what? I'm not anxious. But if I'm anxious and I read the Bible, what does that do? It, it, it convicts you. You say, well, something's out of place. I need to realign my life. And, and so listen. When the perfect, the complete comes, and I'll tell you what, for sake of time, I, I, even this concept is taught in in the book of Galatians. Ah, let's go it. Go over to Galatians chapter four. In Galatians chapter four, the apostle Paul is talking about the maturity of how the Old Testament, how the Old Testament was used to be a tutor. And for those of you who are want to be theologically deep, the tutor often is superficially taught as just the Old Testament law was, was just there as a temporary restraint. And, but they miss the fact that it was a restraint that was a good restraint to bring the church through a, I mean, through the, not the church, but the nation of Israel through a time when they needed a guardian. It was, it was, it was that restraint and that teacher that was temporarily there to bring the nation of Israel through its 
1,500 years of history. But all of a sudden, where is it? Let me find it. Um, in Galatians chapter 4, oh, i got to be in the right Oh, it's Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter... Is this? Okay. Um, chapter 3, verse 23. But before faith, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the things which law later be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor because... Using the illustration of a child who grows up and no longer needs to have a guardian over him, the nation of Israel was like that. In essence, the nation of Israel was representing humanity. That Mankind was going to come to the place when we came to the time of Christ. We didn't need that exterior tutor. So how does this fit with, with the idea of, of, of the Bible? Well, today, because we have Christ inside us, I know it's not the same, but we have Christ inside us, but it, it, there's a maturity that mankind has faced. So go back to 1 Corinthians, and, I, and if you need this elaborated, talk to me privately if I didn't have enough time. But I just wanted you to see that there is that, a similar concept of maturity being addressed in the book of Galatians. So we go back to verse 12, and it says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. So I believe... The Apostle Paul was talking about the completed Bible, the New Testament Bible, and people like John MacArthur will say that he never even thought about a New Testament. Um, he never thought about a New Testament canon. And I respond like, well, how do you know that? How do you know? Did the Apostle Paul write you and tell you, I'm never thinking about the canon? I, I, all I know is that the Apostle Paul says, well, there's going to come a time when we're not going to no longer think in part, and, and, and we're going to be fully known. And I'm going to be able to look in the, in the Bible, and there's going to be like a complete picture. I think that's what the New Testament Christian saint is to do and understand. I don't think the, the Bible is lacking anything. I think everything for our faith and practice, as the scriptures seek, are there. And so that's why I take that as the Bible. Now, again, if you want to say, no, this is eternity, well, you're going to end up still with the same big, big picture of the continuity points, okay? These gifts are... These are gifts that God used to get the Bible information to the early church when the church only had parts of information. Okay, So once the New Testament Bible was complete and collected, there was not a need for these revelatory gifts. The New Testament Bible is the complete picture for the New Testament saint. And so when he wraps this entire argument up, verse 13, but now faith, hope, love, abide in these three. The idea of, of abide is this is where you live. This is where you make your life. And there's a triad there. Do you know there are so many passages? You should, you know, do a treasury hunt. Like, you know, go through the scriptures. Where are there passages where all three of these are shown? Why? Because we're to abide. These are the focus. These are an emphasis of how we live our life. You're supposed to have faith in Jesus. You're supposed to have hope in Jesus. You're supposed to love for Jesus, right? Love for God as well as love and practice. Abide. This is where I make my home. This is where I live my life. This is how on this world I am supposed to operate with these three active principles. I'm supposed to walk by faith. I'm supposed to live a life of hope. But why does he say the greatest of these is love? Is because you're supposed to catch, oh my goodness, continuity. 
Faith and hope aren't needed in heaven. I'm supposed to be like Martha, who, or Mary, who catches it and understands, wait a second, I'm not supposed to be focusing on the preparations here. I'm supposed to focus on Jesus. But the illustration here is, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to realize with all these different things, and I know this Bible could be like an overwhelming, just a ton of information. Well, focus on love. Work out the other stuff. You know, and you look at verse 4, we'll get into this one, 14.1. Pursue love, do it, but yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts. We'll explain that in the future. But what you need to understand is how foolish is it if you don't have love is patient, love is kind, not jealous, doesn't brag, isn't arrogant. Yeah. Listen, people, there's the forest amongst the trees. There's a lot in here, but I wanted you to get the big picture today. And for those of you who wonder sometimes, can God do miracles? We just went through five, six verses, people. <laughs> okay, there you go. If love is very important to have continuity. Why? Because you have to keep on going. And I got to tell you this as we go forward. Listen, when we think about continuity is that it needs to be continually practiced. And I tell you, some of you just keep getting closer to God because you're, you're trying to love people that are really hard in your life. There are hard people. There are people that kick you, they spit at you, they turn you away, and it makes it hard to love. Remember, God wants us to practice this and, and, and to continue to draw upon him because it's the ongoing action that we're going to be doing for all eternity. And, and when you come to the end of yourself, draw near to God because there are people that are so difficult to love in this world. But God wants us to continue to love. If everybody was like me, it'd be easy. You could love and just everything would be great, right? But the reality is that there are hard people. There are people that make life hard for you. They do. And the harder they are, the harder it is to practice those 15 verbal adjectives. But if you have Jesus, this is where you say, in, in normal power, there's no way I could love Mike. How could I have a relationship with Mike? How could I love him? He's such a jerk. But because I know Jesus, you can love me. And you think of the people that's so hard to love in your life. And then say, I recognize, as we said over and over, love's the answer, right? This is the thing we keep going to. Love's always the answer. Let's pray. Father, help us to be people who love. It is so critical. And I'm hoping that today the impression was made upon everybody about the continuity. And I hope it makes them blown away. I hope people understand here what a mature way of understanding the scriptures, how this scripture all comes together. This is the greatest chapter, I think. It's just so amazing, theologically deep, how I want our people to understand how all three arguments work together of the value of the description and the continuity that makes love far superior than any other action. I pray, God, that there's nobody here that misses this now going forward. I hope that we're not Marthas, that we miss the picture, that there's a lot of things that you can do spiritually, but if you don't function with love, you've missed it. And I'm asking, God, that we're a congregation that continually, continually wakes up in the morning, goes to bed at night, and has said, was I patient, was I kind, not jealous. Help the marriage in our church that's struggling right now, God, as people need to forgive one another. Help the parent child relationship where they need to be patient and kind with one another. 
Help me to be patient. Help me to be gracious to my children and to always let them know how much I love them and appreciate them. Help me to be a good husband. Help me to be a good friend. Help us all to be kind to the neighbor that's just an idiot, to the family member that that is so hard that we don't want to even have family gatherings or the family member that runs from us because they don't want anything to do with Christianity. Help us to pursue them. Lay upon the hearts, God, of everyone here because this is a world that says, fine, go, walk away. I'm going to walk away. But you tell me to be patient. You tell me to be kind. You continue to tell me to pursue. That's why we said love bears, believes, hopes, all things, and how in-depth we went last week, God, about how we need to be people that don't give up when the world says give up. And then let us know, as the proverb says, that when things work, that there's such sweetness in relationships where love goes both ways. I don't want any marriage to be a one-way street, God. It shouldn't be. It is wrong that marriage is a one-way street. It is wrong that parenting and child relationships are one-way streets. May the parent and the child love one another. May the friends and the neighbors love one another. And, and, And because we do that, I just want us to celebrate in the joy of relationship, the sweetness that Proverbs talks about. Thank you, God, that you want love to be so important. In Jesus' name, amen.